Today, I'm speaking with Ella Hepner. Ella is a software engineer and independent AGI researcher. We've been discussing all things AGI for a while now, and I wanted to have her on the podcast to present her theory of AGI, and also to discuss a disagreement we've had about the role of replicators in any theory of AGI. Since we both spend a fair amount of time criticizing each other's theories, you may get more out of this episode if you familiarize yourself with my neo-Darwinian theory of the mind first, which I have laid out in both Christopher Lovegren's podcast, I'll link to that episode in the show notes, and in my book, A Window on Intelligence. That being said, it's certainly not required. I think you'll get a lot out of this episode either way. Ella and I also briefly touch on conventional narrow AI research, the role of neuroscience, and the hard problem of consciousness. I even catch myself having changed my mind on the urgency with which we should pursue whole brain emulation in addition to explaining creativity. I've said in the past that there are maybe a handful of people in the world who work on AGI whose approach has not been refuted, and Ella is one of them. And so with that, Ella is going to give us a glimpse into how the mind may work. Okay, so I'm here with Ella Hepna. Ella, welcome to the podcast. Hi, it's great to be here. I've uh, been a big fan of this podcast for a long time, so it's great to be on. Oh, that's great to hear. So um, let's start with what got you into AGI research. Yeah, so um, I think I have about the same backstory as a lot of other people in our space in that uh, I read David Deutsch's The Beginning of Infinity, and I, it blew my mind, you know, the entire stance that it took towards um, science and the philosophy of science and epistemology um, really uh, was inspiring to me. And I'd had somewhat of an interest in AI before that, but in, it was in reading David Deutsch's work that I uh, really started to realize that um, this the, the epistemology that he was talking about was really, really important to AI, and it sort of invalidated a lot of the um, approaches that many people are taking right now, and any uh, approach towards AGI that was actually going to work would need to, um, you know, be in line with sort of Popperian Deutschian epistemology. And so that's sort of what inspired me to uh, begin working on it like I am now. So did you, did you um, also read any Popper after you read Deutsch? Yep. Um, so after I read The Beginning of Infinity, I went back and read um, his The Fabric of Reality. And then I read, um, I read uh, Conjectures and Refutations by Popper, as well as the book uh, Objective Knowledge and Evolutionary Approach. And then I've read a, a few of his essays from other books, but those are the only two books of his I read in full. Yeah, I love Popper's books. Um, I mean, mm -hmm. especially Objective Knowledge, I thought was fascinating. Um, my, yeah, that was a great one. Yeah, my story is pretty much similar to you. I think we read all the same books in almost the same order. That's funny. Uh -huh. <laughs> so you, you actually have developed a theory for what you think might be the best approach to, to building AGI. What is, this, That's right. what is this theory called? Yeah, so I call the theory CTP theory. And um, that name, that acronym CTP, it used to mean something, but it doesn't really anymore. It's just kind of a placeholder because I don't have uh, any better idea for a name. So uh, it's called CTP theory, but not for any good reason. And what did it, what did CTP stand for in the past? So in, yeah, so initially CTP uh, stood for claim theory problem, um, and those uh, were just kind of the name of the three sort of fundamental entities in the theory. But since then, um, the theory I, I've developed the theory some more, and I realized that there doesn't really need to be a distinction between claims and theories. And so it, instead, there's just sort of a um, 
a, a single sort of idea data structure that you could call an idea or a theory. Um, it doesn't really need a, uh, a super technical name anymore because it doesn't need to be distinguished from anything else um, since there's just the one type. Um, and so there, uh, the, the, um, the notions of claim and theory have just kind of gone by the wayside as the theories developed. So, um, and so the name is kind of very outdated at this point, but uh, if anybody listening has a better suggestion for the name of the theory after hearing about it, uh, please just email me. I'd be happy to uh, hear any suggestions because I'd be happy to stop calling this thing CTP theory. Okay, we'll put your email address in the show notes. Um, yeah, sounds good. <laughs> okay, so so tell tell us um, how did you get started on CTP theory? Was there something that sparked it? Did you just have a sudden epiphany? Was it more of a gradual thing? And and what is it about? It was more of a gradual uh, process developing CTP theory. I had some initial ideas on AGI, which looking back on them now were very um, flawed and uh, kind of naive. Um, but uh, what initially led me towards CTP theory as I think about it now was considering Popper's, uh, uh, Popper's um, what Popper said about criticism and contradiction. So in an essay in uh, uh, Conjectures and Refutations, he talked about how all uh, criticism consists of pointing out contradictions between theories or between a theory and, you know, some sort of statement of fact about evidence. And so uh, I, I started realizing that contradictions between ideas are really central to uh, Popperian epistemology. And so I started thinking about how ideas could be represented in on a computer in a way that would allow for contradictions to be uh, sort of uh, seen between them in a way that a computer could see the contradictions between ideas, and then work from there to resolve the problems. Um, and so I can go ahead and give a, an explanation of how CTP theory works. Basically, um, CTP theory says that uh, an uh, a mind contains a set of ideas, and each idea, the way it's represented on the computer, is that it is basically some kind of, uh, it's an instance of a data structure. And all um, ideas in the mind consist of the same uh, data structure, but they each have their own data. And so just as an example, we can imagine that the ideas are all bit strings. Um, and then one of the essential parts of CTP theory is that the mind has a way uh, to detect direct contradictions between ideas in its uh, set of ideas. And what I mean by a direct contradiction is uh, a little bit, um, I, I don't think this terminology is used elsewhere, so this is kind of my uh, way of thinking about it, but a direct contradiction um, means a contradiction between a statement like X is true and X is false, right? So very uh, sort of self-evidently contradictory. Um, you know, it would be very easy to sort of uh, kind of represent this computationally, whereas there are other ideas that are contradictory. Um, an example that I like to use a lot is um, my cat is calico and my cat is male, right? All calico cats are female, so that um, those two statements are contradictory, but they're not directly contradictory. Um, and so CTP theory says that the mind has a way of recognizing direct contradictions uh, between the ideas in its mind. Um, and so if the ideas are represented as bit strings, the method for detecting direct contradictions might be, um, say, two ideas are directly contradictory if they are bit strings of the same length and they have all the same uh, bits except for the first one, say. Um, and so that would give you a way to determine you know, if two ideas are contradictory or not, directly contradictory, that is. So that's kind of the basic way that uh, CTP theory recognizes contradictions. But it, uh, 
obviously that isn't uh, sufficient because, like I said, there are these more um, indirect contradictions, like my cat is calico and my cat is male, um, which wouldn't be covered by that method. And so, the way that... Mm-hmm, go ahead. Before we go further, um, uh, what is a bit string? A bit string? Yeah, sure. So a bit string, um, the way I'm using the term, just means a, uh, a, a list of bits. Um, a bit is a zero or a one or a two or a false. And by a list, I just mean an ordered collection of them of some size. And so, you know, zero, zero, one, zero, that's a bit string. That's a bit string of length four. You could have bit strings of any size. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's um, kind of what I mean by a bit string. And I'm just using that as an example data structure in, in the real CDP theory, you probably wouldn't actually use a bit string, but that's just a data structure that I find it easy to think about. So that's uh, what I'm gonna use in this, as an example. Okay, and you said you're reserving the first bit, so that means the, the first character in the string, the first number in that string, you're reserving that to be the true, the, or false, value for that idea. Is that correct? Yeah, that, yeah that's, that's one way to think about it. And yeah, so you can think of the first bit in the string as sort of saying the rest of these bits are true or the rest of these bits are false. And then you sort of, whenever there's two ideas, one of which says, you know, 001 is true and one of which says Zero, zero, 001 is false, well, those are obviously indirect contradiction. And so, yeah, you can think of the uh, the first bit in the bit string as being sort of a truth flag for the rest of the content of the bit string. Now, one thing we should point out, I think, is that um, it might seem strange at first to have just a string of zeros and ones, uh, but I think it's important to realize that zeros and ones in this configuration are computationally universal. So you could indeed express any possible idea um, through bit strings, as long as these bit strings can be long enough. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so so the one of one of the um, sort of interesting consequences of information theory is that actually um, almost any alpha or well, really any alphabet um, of characters can be used to express the same as any other alphabet. You know, so if you think of an English sentence, there's you know probably forty characters that we use um, in English pretty regularly, not including the the capital letters, of course, um, but you can imagine that you assign a um, an 8-bit uh, code to each of those letters. And then in that way, you could represent a um, string of English characters um, with just bits, zeros and ones. And so uh, the, the fact that I'm using a bit string here doesn't really limit the capabilities of the theory at all. It's, um, it's a universal data structure. It can represent an infinite um, number of different things. And you could convert it in your mind, if you want, to any other kind of data structure because it is universal for representing data. Right on. Okay. Now, so what would it mean, for example, for an idea to contain the numbers 1011? Right. Um, so that's a good question. Um, and the answer is that it wouldn't necessarily mean anything uh, inherently. So in the same way that, you know, the the, the series of syllables, um, hello, doesn't really mean anything on its own. It only means things by sort of the way it takes on context in relation to other strings of syllables that we use. And um so in the same way that, you know, language is really just arbitrary strings of symbols, but it takes on meaning in a proper context, um, a, a string like 0010 or whatever you said um, wouldn't really mean anything on its own, but it would take on a meaning by the way that it relates to other ideas in the mind. Got it. So presumably, I'm guessing you would have another idea itself encoded in, in binary code, which lets you interpret an idea like 1011? 
Right. So um, I, I, I think um, this will become a little bit clearer if I uh, kind of go a bit further with the explanation I was giving uh, earlier of how the theory works. Yeah, sure. So uh, as I said, the mind has a way to detect direct contradictions between ideas, but we also need a way to detect indirect contradictions, of course. And this is where one of the central ideas in CTP theory comes in, which is that ideas aren't just instances of data structures. Um, they're a little bit more than that. Um, and that the mind has a way to interpret an idea, um, an instance of a data structure, as a function. And what I mean by a function here is the way the term is generally used in mathematics, um, which is just a mapping from some set of inputs to some set of outputs. Um, and when uh, when I talk about a, the mind interpreting a uh, an idea as a function, what I mean is that it essentially has a programming language built into it. And the, uh, the bit strings in the mind are programs in that programming language, which define functions, which map from uh, inputs to outputs. Um, and so you can think of, you can imagine that the mind contains a, uh, you know, a C compiler or something like that, or any programming language compiler. It converts the bit strings into that programming language, and then it runs that code. That's one way to think about it. Um, and so when a function, uh, you know, when an idea is interpreted as a function, and it takes another idea as an input, it'll produce a new idea as an output, right? So um, ideas can be functions where their domain is ideas and their range is ideas. Um, so it, sort of what higher this means, level ideas in a sense. Yeah, yeah, they, they, they can um, exist at like any level of abstraction. They can return, you know, they can return other ideas that are interpreted as functions and so on. Um, but but basically, on an epistemological level, what this represents is the ability for ideas to imply other ideas, right? So if we have one idea A, and that idea is interpreted as a function, and it takes an idea B as an input, and then it produces a new idea C as an output. The ways this um, should be thought of on an epistemological level is that A and B together imply C. Um, and so this is how the mind um, uses those ideas to uh, produce new ones. Um, and this kind of gives the, uh, the mind a way to detect indirect contradictions in the sense that um, if an idea's implications, which is to say the, uh, the new ideas that it produces when it's used as a function or as an input to a function, if one of those leads to a direct contradiction with something else, then you can trace that back to the antecedent ideas, the ideas that were used as uh, the, the, the functions or the inputs to the functions to produce the outputs. Um, and those can be said to be indirectly contradictory with the other idea, because even though they aren't directly contradictory, they led to something that is directly contradictory. And um, in the example, uh, my cat is calico and my cat is male, you can imagine that the idea my cat is calico, along with some other idea like all calico cats are female, would imply the idea my cat is female, right? And then the idea my cat is female would imply my cat is not male, and then you have a direct contradiction between my cat is not male and my cat is male. And so that's the way that the mind in CTP theory would be able to detect both direct and indirect contradictions. Got it. Just to linger on that example of the calico cat, um, if I'm remembered correctly, we've spoken about this example before, but the reason there is an indirect contradiction there is because there, there's a biological phenomenon that leads to the fact that all calico cats are female. Am I remembering that correctly? Yes, right. Yeah. So all, all um, the, there are no um, male calico cats in the world. Or actually, I believe that there are, um, you know, some tiny, uh, tiny number of genetic mutants that um, are male in calico. But, uh, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm not actually implying that the ideas 
in the mind in this example are true. Uh, you know, this is just something that a mind could believe, right? So it could believe that all calico cats are female, um, and thus it would be able to, you know, derive that its cat or that my cat is female if I thought that my cat was calico, for instance. Got it. And if somebody claimed that their cat was calico and male, you would then perceive, I don't mean perceive as in sense data, but you would perceive a conflict there in your mind. Yes, you would per you'd perceive a contradiction. And that, um, the, uh, to go a little bit further with CTP theory, um, contradictions between ideas are said to be problems. So the word problem in sort of critical rationalism you, uh, more broadly is used in a lot of different ways. Um, and it's sort of hard to nail down exactly what that means um, you know, on, on a technical level. But in CTP theory, when I use the word problem, I'm specifically referring to a, con or a direct contradiction between two ideas, along with kind of the set of, uh, you know, ideas that are indirectly responsible for that direct contradiction. And so um, resolving a problem in CTP theory means basically getting rid of some of the ideas that caused the direct contradiction, right? So if you have the idea my cat is male and my cat is not male, you have to just get rid of one of those two in order to solve the problem. And, you know, you can't just get rid of, uh, you know, if you have the idea, my cat is female, and that idea came from um, my cat is calico and all calico cats are female, you can't just get rid of my cat is female without getting rid of one of those ideas too, right? Because it's a, it's a logical implication of one of those ideas. Um, and so you have to get rid of one of those as well and so the, the modifications that you make to a mind um, in terms of solving a problem will often involve uh, removing sort of quite uh, far disconnected ideas that are indirectly responsible for the contradiction. So in the example of the Calico Cat, you said one of those ideas has to go in order to resolve the conflict. Either the cat in question is not male or the cat is not Calico. Um, unless what you said earlier which there might be some mutant cats that occur every now and then in nature. Now here we have an alternate explanation. And so in this case, the conflict goes away without dismissing one of the ideas. You can still keep both. Uh, yeah, so, so in that case, um, the, the, the idea my cat is female and, um, or sorry, my cat is calico and my cat is male, those aren't the only two ideas involved uh, in, the, uh, in the problem here. There's also the idea all calico cats are female, right? Because that's necessary to derive the idea, my cat is female from the statement, my cat is calico. And so it, it's actually at least those three ideas, right? So my cat is calico, my cat is uh, male, and all calico cats are female, right? It, you have right. to consider all three of those ideas. Mm -hmm. And so if um, kind of uh, adopting the new explanation that, uh, you know, most calico cats are female, but there's a small proportion of, um, you know, male calico cats, that would involve getting rid of the idea all calico cats are female. And so kind of uh, by definition, any, uh, any um, way of resolving a contradiction is going to uh, involve getting rid of at least some idea involved. And when I say getting rid of, what that could mean is sort of modifying the idea, which uh, you know, in, in other terms uh, involves getting rid of an idea and then adding a new idea, which is kind of similar to the old one, but varied in some way. Okay, so then how does the mind decide, how does the mind know whether to dismiss one of the ideas in question or to generate a new theory that resolves the conflict? Yes. So, um, so uh, I think CTP theory, as I've explained it so far, does a good job of 
um, uh, explaining how the mind could detect contradictions and how the mind could go about, you know, um, figuring out how to resolve those contradictions by getting rid of some ideas. And there's kind of, uh, you know, if you look at my recent blog post on fourstrands.org um, or .com or something, I can't recall, um, then that that explains in sort of more technical detail exactly the process of figuring out which ideas um, the mind can think about removing. But CTB theory isn't yet a, uh, a complete theory, right? Uh, if it was, then, you know, maybe you'd be talking to the AGI that I created instead of me. Um, but I, I'm, it's not <laughs> at that I stage am. yet. Maybe I am. How do I know? <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe I'm just not giving you the full theory. Who knows? Um, but uh, so where CTB theory uh, kind of is currently is in the uh, process of figuring out um, how exactly does the mind decide which idea to get rid of? Um, because it, it, in a strictly logical sense, you could just get rid of an arbitrary idea uh, in the set of responsible ideas. You could just arbitrarily say, okay, um, I'm going to get rid of the idea all cats are, uh, or all calico cats are female. And if you get rid of that idea, um, then the contradiction is resolved. But you can't just solve uh, on an epistemological level. We know that you can't just uh, solve any uh, relevant I or any uh, I any problem by just get getting rid of one of the uh, relevant ideas, right? So if um, uh, an example that I used in my recent article is if you consider the scientists um, who first noticed the uh, anomaly with the perihelion of Mercury's orbit, um, which is to say the uh, the first people who noticed that Newton's theory produced the wrong predictions about where Mercury should be. Um, those scientists would have had a contradiction in their mind, according to CTP theory, between Newton's theory and the, uh, the, the evidence that they were seeing. Um, and so if we just kind of go with uh, CTP theory the way I've described it so far, they might just arbitrarily say, okay, well, Newton's theory is false. I'm just going to get rid of it. Um, but Obviously, that's not actually how scientists think, and it's not how they should think, because that would just be a completely fruitless way of viewing the world. And they um, would and lose so, explanatory power for a lot of other problems that they have already solved. Absolutely, yes. So losing explanatory power um, is kind of what CTP theory needs to account for, which it doesn't yet. Um, so, yeah, it, it, and that's kind of one way of thinking about it. Um, I, I do have some ideas as to how CTP theory can go about doing that. Um, which I can describe, but uh, th this is kind of the, the active area of where I'm thinking. And um, to, to go into what the possible solution might be here is um, it's something that I call the requirement system. And uh, one way to think about this is, uh, as you said, those scientists wouldn't throw out Newton's theory because they would lose a lot of explanatory power. And the way that um, I'm, I am considering modeling this in CTP theory is that you know there, there's a lot of things that they, the scientists might want to be able to do. They might want to be able to say or to answer the question, uh, you know, how fast is this object going to fall if I drop it from a height of three meters? You know, Newton's theory would answer that question, and they might also want to answer the question, where is, um, you know, Neptune going to be in a hundred years? And Newton's theory can answer that equation or answer that question. So if you threw it out, then there would be sort of these unfulfilled desires in the mind which is to say, um, you know, you would have a desire to know what is the speed of this object going to be or where is um, Neptune going to be in 100 years, um, but you would have no way of fulfilling that requirement or, or, or that desire. Um, and so uh, basically the, the, um, the solution that I'm thinking uh, CTP theory will need to implement is that it has a way of representing requirements or desires 
And when a uh, when um, a uh, suggestion to you know get rid of Newton's theory or something, when a suggestion like that would lead to some desires or requirements becoming unfulfilled, then that is rejected, right? You you have to find a way to get rid of some ideas, introduce some new ideas, whatever, to resolve the contradiction without leading to any requirements or desires becoming unfulfilled is kind of the, the guess that I uh, have currently. And and so to, to kind of connect that to the um, the idea of explanatory power, um, the explanatory power is a useful sort of high level concept, but it isn't, it's not really clear how to um, implement, you know, the, the notion of explanatory power directly on a computer. Um, and, and this notion of having requirements or desires in the mind is basically a, uh, a way of representing kind of the quanta of uh, explanatory power, um, which is to say, I want to be able to explain this and this and this, right? And they're all uh, individual kind of units of things that you want to be able to explain. And so you need to have the explanatory power to answer all of those individual questions. One thing I want to touch on real quick is that the ideas that are encoded in binary code in the mind, as per CTP theory, um, these are not credences. Uh, these are not um, generated by sense data. I do want to no, yeah. disambiguate a little bit from the traditional model of, of this inductivist model of how the mind works, just to make it clear for our listeners, you're not thinking of establishing truth of ideas you're focusing explicitly following Popper, resolving conflicts because you know that you can never establish the truth of an idea. Yes, exactly. And um, to be clear, in CDP theory, there's no kind of credence um, assigned to any uh, any theory or any ideas at all. There is simply the idea in the mind, and it can contradict other ideas, and that's it. There's no notion of credence or you know likelihood of being correct. There's just ideas and contradictions between ideas. Okay, great. How how do the senses play a role, though? I mean, if if we're talking about creating an AGI, eventually you would want that AGI to interact with the world. So presumably there would be some stream of input data coming in from the outside world. What would a, a mind, a creative mind in CTP theory do with that stream of data? Yeah, so um, the, the, the initial question really is um, what form of, would that stream of data take, right? How, how would that actually get into the mind in a way that the ideas in the mind could interact with it? And the answer here, and this is going to sound a little bit empiricist, but I promise it's not, and I'll explain why, um, is that the uh, the sense data will take the form of an idea in the mind. And so basically the way this would work is you'd have some sort of external sense organ, you know, maybe that's uh, you know, using a camera to take a video of the world and then that's getting put into the mind. That information from that camera or whatever other sort of sense organ would be put into the form of an idea and then that idea would be inserted into the mind. And now that sounds like empiricism because I'm saying, oh, well, you know, ideas in the mind are formed by uh, sense data. But uh, really, even calling this an idea um, is a bit sort of, um, it's a bit incorrect in an epistemological sense. What's happening merely is that, you know, ideas are uh, built so that they can work with a certain type of input, right? And if we, uh, so the idea is that we want to put the sense data into that form so that uh, ideas can use it as an input and then produce outputs from it. And so it takes the form of an idea and uh, it's, it sort of looks like an idea in the mind, 
but it isn't uh, on an epistemological level. It isn't uh, the same as, you know, some sort of conjectured theory. It's it, it really is just raw data, even though the mind treats it uh, in the same way that it would treat an idea on a low level. So in some way you have to impose the same constraints onto the sense data that you're imposing on ideas. For example, sense data would always start, you would always treat the first bit in the sense data as a truth value? Um, yes. So it, it, so in this example, it would have to be put into the form of a bit string. Um, but you can imagine that, uh, you know, all of the bit strings of sense data just have a one is their first bit, right? Because you wouldn't really want direct contradictions between, you know, different types of sense data. Um, you would want that to happen on the level of interpretation, right? You would want the mind to see something and then see something else and interpret those things as being contradictory. And interpretation here uh, basically means taking the sense data and using it as an input to some other idea and producing a new idea as an output. And that idea, the, the idea that's being used as a function, um, is sort of interpreting the sense data to produce some new statement. Um, and, and so the, the, the way that you would um, translate the sense data into uh, a bit string doesn't have to be, you know, just the most straightforward way of doing it. You can do something like, you know, making sure the first bit is always a one just so that the information is still there, but it, it, isn't, um, it isn't going to directly contradict anything in the mind. Okay, but then couldn't you have ideas that look just like sense data and vice versa? So let's say you get some sense data and it takes the form of 1011, the same as I said earlier, and you also have your mind happens to contain an idea that is encoded in 1011. At that point, how would the mind distinguish between these two? Because one one is is still different from the other, isn't it? Yes, so uh, it's a good question, and um, I suppose the answer is just that uh, I, I think that in practice the mind wouldn't really. Uh, I think that the mind would evolve into a way where it wouldn't really um, end up producing the same, the exact same form as uh, some kind of sense data. And so, uh, I guess what I mean here is that um, you can imagine that uh, if you imagine that maybe all the bit strings that represent sense data start with some kind of special code, right? Like a code, uh, and this is something that you just program into, you know, the way sense data is uh, put into the mind. You might say um, all sense data starts with a string of 10 ones, and that is uh, sort of to mark it as sense data. And then so the mind could simply evolve, you know, not to start all of its uh, ideas with 10 ones, right? Like maybe the mind decides, okay, well, the second bit is always going to be a zero in my ideas, right? Or, or something along those lines. And uh, then in that way, because you uh, have sort of designed the mind to have this uh, marker for sense data, um, it would be easy for the mind to tell the difference between, you know, sense data and uh, some other form of idea. And it, it's still possible in theory that the mind could produce something with 10 ones at the start, but I think if if that's if that were the case, then um, the mind would be able to realize, oh wait, these uh, you know this is not really sense data; it's just kind of masquerading as sense data. Um, I shouldn't I shouldn't use this format for representing my ideas in the future because if you're doing that, then it's probably going to cause contradictions. If you're um, you know tricking yourself into thinking that you're seeing things that you're not, that's going to interact with your other ideas, and you're going to say wait, that elephant shouldn't be floating in midair. Where did that idea come from? And then you trace that back and, and you know, the mind would decide, okay, I'm not going to format ideas like this anymore because that's interfering with the sense data system. 
Got it. It could actually be a really neat explanation of where, uh, you know, hallucinations come from or stuff like that, where maybe an idea mutated in such a way that it took the shape of sense data. And so now the yes, rest of your absolutely. mind <laughs> interpreted it as, a, it as sense data as if it was coming in from mm -hmm. the outside when really it originated from the inside. And it Yeah, it definitely it sh could. It shines light on this this idea, this Papierian idea that really we don't perceive anything directly anyway. Everything is subject to interpretation. Um, we don't have direct access to the real world, even though it exists. Um, what we see around us is subject to error and subject to interpretation. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Now, would this mean that you said something there just now about how the mind would then decide, okay, I'm not going to, I forget exactly how you phrase it, but something along those, okay, I'm not going to take ideas of this shape into account or something. So basically what that means is the way the mind reasons about ideas is itself subject to change. Is that right? Well, so it, it's not that the mind would decide, uh, I'm not going to take ideas of this form into account. It's more just that if the mind was producing ideas of that form, that would probably eventually lead to some kind of contradictions because, you know, it wouldn't be what it wouldn't be the type of sense data that the mind is used to seeing. And then in that case, it would, you know, trace the, the source of those, you know, sort of false sense data ideas backwards. And it would realize, oh, this or and when I say realize here, um, I'm kind of speaking anthropomorphically. I, I guess I can try to speak in a more technical way um, to uh, and that might be more helpful. So the mind would trace backwards to whatever idea is producing these sort of confusing false uh, sense data ideas. And it would uh, eventually, just by trying, uh, you know, blind conjectures to solve the problem, it would come up with a conjecture that would involve not uh, phrasing ideas in that way anymore, right? Not using the same um, format as a sense data uh, idea, a, a true sense data idea, so that it isn't confusing the sensory, you know, interpretation system anymore, so that those ideas aren't, um, you know, so that they don't look like sense data ideas anymore, and the, the other parts of the mind can distinguish between them. Okay, but what, I guess what I'm getting at is, would every mind do this reliably? Well, um, you know, we, we can't make any guarantees, you know, that uh, any mind is going to solve any particular problem. But uh, I suspect that if the mind had a sort of already, uh, if you imagine that it already has a sort of sophisticated way of interpreting its sense data, um, and then it starts, uh, you know, uh, producing sort of these false sense data ideas that are uh, accidentally getting interpreted as true sense data, um, I suspect that there wouldn't really be any way, any easy way of solving that problem other than by tracing back to the idea that's causing the confusing false sense data ideas and, you know, getting rid of uh, and getting rid of that idea or forcing that idea to, you know, format its outputs in a different way. Um, and, and the reason for that is that if you tried to modify any other idea involved in the sort of sensory interpretation part of the mind, then you would probably end up failing to satisfy a lot of requirements or desires, right? If you decided to throw out one of those ideas, then you would probably end up losing a lot of explanatory power. There's probably not any easy modifications that you could make there that would, uh, you know, be satisfying solutions to the problem and the sense of resolving the contradiction while also keeping uh, the the explanatory power that the mind wants. Um, and so the the easiest solution to this problem would uh, almost certainly be 
that the mind just stops, uh, the mind just changes that idea that's producing the confusing signals and forces it to uh, format its um, outputs in a different way. Um, so so it's, it's not that the mind would always 100% reliably um, do that. It's just that if the mind already has a mature, you know, uh, well-adapted sense data or sensory interpretation part of its mind, then uh, it's going to be very hard to modify that rather than modifying the confusing uh, sensory data uh, producer. And so uh, that would generally be, I, I think that we would expect the mind to uh, find that solution just because that's going to be the easiest way to resolve the problem. Okay, so you said that some open problems currently with CTP theory are how to decide which ideas to discard when there is a conflict, and and this notion of explanatory power, it's not quite clear how to quantify that. Um, well, how does, well, first of all, do you, do, are you working on any other open problems with CTP theory? So that one's um, kind of the biggest one, the, the fact that, you know, we need a way to sort of phrase explanatory power um, in a computational way. And I think the requirement system that I have um, is, a, is a good start. It's just I, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling to make that idea or, um, you know, get that system, um, describe it in a sufficiently detailed way where I can actually turn that into code. There's some parts of that that I haven't nailed down yet um, that I'm working on nailing down. So that's definitely the biggest open problem in CTP theory. And there are some other open problems, but uh, in my mind, it's sort of like all of the other problems kind of rely on this one because CTP theory as it is just doesn't work, right? It, it, it doesn't produce, it doesn't produce like half of an interesting mind. It just doesn't work at all without a solution to this problem. I think there's still valuable theoretical insights from the rest of CTP theory about, you know, how contradictions can be recognized. But um, the, the actual picture of uh, how the mind uh, evolves over time um, just is clearly uh, and completely incomplete without uh, something like a, an explanatory, uh, a way to account for explanatory power. So that's by far the biggest open problem, I'd say. But um, some other open problems, uh, just kind of little ones, are um, how exactly does the mind uh, choose which ideas to feed to other ideas, right, as inputs? And um, it, it might just be that the mind can just kind of do this blindly, um, but that might end up being really inefficient. Um, and the reason I don't really consider that uh, as important of an open problem is that, you know, once we resolve the, uh, the, the problem of explanatory power, right, and once I nail down the details of the requirement system, I could just sort of try different things out and find out what the most efficient way to do that is, right? I can just sort of uh, empirically figure out the best way to, uh, you know, feed ideas to other ideas. And so that's just kind of a small uh, sort of subsidiary problem to this greater problem of getting the theory to work in the first place. And, and there are other kind of small problems like that that I could, uh, you know, go on about, but uh, none of them are nearly at the level of importance of the um, explanatory power problem. Okay. I, I do want to linger on the, the problem of explanatory power for just a moment. Am I understanding correctly that you, so would... Let, let's say you've, you have found a way to determine an idea's explanatory power. Um, is the idea that, is the purpose of that um, determination that an idea that has higher explanatory power than another one would win the conflict? If there was, if there was ever, an, if there, if there was ever an, a conflict between an idea with high explanatory power and one with low explanatory power, you would favor the one with high explanatory power? 
Um, it's it's not quite that. It's more if we go back to the example of you know the perihelion of Mercury and uh, and Newton's theory. Um, it, it's not just that we would choose to you know keep Newton's theory and throw out the the you know explanatory the uh, ideas involved in the experiment just because Newton's theory has higher explanatory power. Um, what it is instead is that you need to find some conjecture, right? Some way of modifying the ideas in the mind, getting rid of ideas and introducing ideas that um, satisfies all of the uh, explanatory power that Newton's theory has, or um, you know, find some different way of interpreting or interpreting the experimental data, right? That satisfies everything, uh, all, all the explanatory power that we want that to satisfy. But that turned out to be impossible, right? The measurements about Mercury were actually correct, right? There wasn't any problem in the experimental apparatus. And so the only solution was to find a, a replacement for Newton's theory that had all the explanatory power, um, but didn't produce the contradiction. And eventually uh, Einstein came along and uh, gave us the theory of general relativity. And that theory had all of the explanatory power uh, that Newton's theory had, but it didn't lead to the contradiction surrounding uh, Mercury's perihelion. And, and so it's not it's not as simple as just saying the idea with uh, higher explanatory power wins, uh, you know, in any conflict. It's just that when there is a conflict, um, we judge solutions by whether or not they preserve all the explanatory power that the mind had before. Right. OK. So in other words, as Popper would say, Newton's theory lives on in Einstein's as an approximation and, yeah, exactly. And that is part of why we consider Einstein's theory better, because it answers, it, it solves all the problems, I think it does, all this, or maybe with some exceptions, but it solves all the relevant problems that Newton's theory solved, and then some. It also solves some exactly. other stuff. Um, and and um, just to expand on the reason why I see kind of the requirement system or the desire system that I was describing earlier as sort of a good way to handle this problem of explanatory power, um, it... it I think that the notion of, say, the explanatory power of Newton's theory can kind of be reduced to the uh, the question of what uh, you know what ideas does Newton's theory lead to that we want to preserve that right that we want to be able to answer right and so that would be things like predicting the movements of planets predicting the movements of you know uh, objects on Earth under the influence of gravity um, etc and so those would be framed as sort of individual requirements right like. I want a way to predict uh, the mo the movement of planets. I want a way to predict the uh, movements of objects on Earth uh, under the influence of gravity. Um, and so when each of those requirements is satisfied by another theory, like uh, Einstein's theory of general relativity, then um, there's no need for Newton's theory anymore because those uh, requirements are already satisfied by something else. And then you can resolve the conflict between um, you know, Newton's theory and uh, the, the experimental data about the perihelion of Mercury by simply getting rid of Newton's theory, because you already have this other theory, um, Einstein's theory, which, uh, doesn't, which has all the explanatory power of Newton's theory um, in the sense that it fulfills all the relevant requirements, but it doesn't uh, have the contradiction. Okay. Um, now, I do want to get a little bit into criticisms of CTP theory, just to play devil's advocate and, and see yeah, how, what your response is. Um, mm -hmm. one, maybe this will lead to criticism, maybe not, but one more thing that I want to clarify is, um, I think I remember us talking about this and just for listeners, you and I have been talking about CTP theory for a while as part of the four strands yeah. group, but, mm -hmm. um, I think 
do I remember correctly that you incorporate some notion of ideas being hard to vary in the Deutschian sense? Um, I, I did. Uh, I, I've considered in the past, um, in the past before I had this uh, new notion of the requirement system or the desire system or whatever you want to call it, I did in the past uh, consider trying to come up with a way to sort of measure um, hardness to vary or uh, kind of another way to think about it would be adaptedness, how well adapted an idea is to, you know, whatever its purpose is, um, to try to come up with sort of a metric for that and then use that as kind of a deciding factor um, when deciding which ideas to throw out. But that that isn't a part of the way that I currently think about C2B theory. The, the sort of the requirement system or the desire system has um, kind of uh, sort of um, encapsulated that. It's sort of so the idea of sort of explicitly incorporating a, a metric of hard to vary, um, no, I, I'm not. I don't think that's necessary anymore. Got it. Now, one thing I'm, I'm getting a general sense, but maybe you can shed any doubt that I have. One one sense I get is that what CTP theory is describing is a rational mind. Um, it sounds a little bit like a science machine. I don't mean this in a derogatory sense. It would be great if something like that existed. But the what it seems to me is, okay, you, you have a conflict between ideas, and then what the mind does is it is it keeps trying to resolve the conflict, right? And you've, you've introduced some notions of how it might go about this, like maybe the, the notion of explanatory power plays a role here. There is the notion of direct contradictions and indirect contradictions. So it's sort of iterate over all these things to find a better solution. I just wonder if that is really what a creative mind does, because it doesn't sound like what you've described so far doesn't really sound creative necessarily. So because, for example, um, a scientist who finds a problem with Mercury's orbit a problem for Newton's theory, will have very different, first of all, he'll have very different ideas as to how to resolve that conflict than someone who's not an astronomer, say. Um, but you could still accommodate that in CTP theory, I think. It's just that those two minds have developed different ideas and different conf conflicts between those ideas. But it's, there, there will come a point at which even the most the most fascinated scientist, the most fascinated astronomer who's so fascinated with this problem, <laughs> there will come a point where he's hungry and he gets up and makes a sandwich. So he he puts the I, he puts the work aside for a moment. I I don't quite see yet how CTP theory accommodates this, and maybe it does. Can can you elaborate? Yeah. So, um, so the process that I've described of, you know, kind of searching through various ways of modifying the mind to, uh, you know, find a solution to a problem, um, it, that, uh, I, I, I imagine that the mind would sort of have multiple, um, instances of that process running in parallel, um, at the same time, right? So it wouldn't just devote all of its energy to, the problem of how do I fix Newton's theory or something like that, right? It might be solving that problem while, uh, you know, another uh, kind of another process running in parallel is kind of uh, trying to solve the problem. I'm hungry. How do I fix that? Right. What, uh, what can I do to fix the fact that I'm hungry? Um, and so uh, it, it's not that the mind would be devoting all of its energy to any one problem at any one time. And uh, actually you could say that the problem of how does the mind decide which problems to work on is kind of another open problem with CTP theory. I don't really have a, um, a strong answer to that. 
um, the, the, the kind of the, the default answer would just be that it, it uh, you know, chooses or it looks at all the problems in its mind, it picks a random one, and then it tries to solve it, right? And then maybe if it can't solve it for five minutes, then it picks a different one and tries to solve that. And that at least I think would work. It might not be as efficient as some other, um, you know, more sophisticated algorithm for choosing the right problems. But I think that that would, uh, that, that's just sort of the basic uh, problem that I'm assuming for now, or the basic um, system that I'm assuming for now. And once uh, the, the problems with the requirement system are more laid out, maybe more work can be done there. But that's kind of the way that I imagine the mind uh, working for now. Got it. How do you square this with the notion of interests, for example? I mean, a scientist who's just fascinated with astronomy, say, will keep working on his problems even after five minutes, you know. So in the, in the model you just described, he may change to another idea within five minutes. Would there then be another idea maybe that's, that overrides this mechanism and says, no, no, let's, let's stick with the problem we're working on now, and then that would sort of manifest as, a, as an interest, maybe? Yeah, so uh, I think that the the notion of interest can kind of be um, it, it's somewhat related to the uh, the requirement or the desire system. So it, um, if you're imagining, you know, how does somebody develop an interest in you know astronomy or you know the problem with Newton's theory in the first place? Um, if their mind had uh, a set of ideas, right, that would produce um, that would produce the desire, um, I want to know how to predict the positions of uh, you know planets, right. If, if something in the mind leads to that desire being created, then that is uh, at least part of, you know, an interest in astronomy, right? The, the way that you would, um, the, the way that you would uh, solve that, um, that unfulfilled requirement or unfulfilled desire is by, you know, learning about astronomy. Um, and so uh, that, that's kind of the way that I broadly think of uh, people developing different interests um, in the framework of CTB theory. Um, but you're, you're also asking about, you know, uh, it can't just be, you know, he stops working on a problem after five minutes and does something else because, you know, that's not how people work, right? We can decide to, um, you know, work on ideas, um, for as long as we want. And that's true. Um, and the, the, the system that I'm, you know, proposing of just pick something random and work on it for five minutes, you know, that, that's just kind of a first guess, um, as to how, uh, the mind could do things. Uh, like, as I said, that's almost certainly not the best way to do things. It might be instead that maybe the mind... Um, based on, you know, how many, how many important ideas or really just how many ideas and how many desires uh, or requirements are involved in a problem, maybe it spends more time on those problems, right? And so if you have a big interest in astronomy and you know a lot about astronomy, then there's going to be a lot of conflicting ideas and requirements and, um, and so on in the mind. And then maybe the mind would uh, devote more time to solving those problems as opposed to somebody who has an interest in gardening or something. Yes. Okay. That makes sense. And I guess what I'm, what I'm picturing here is the problem that, um, I mean, you could, I understand that the, the switching every five minutes is just a first guess, you know, and it's, we both understand that that's probably not it because that's not how people work. But I think any, um, I'm guessing any, any particular answer, anything of the form every five minutes or do this, and then after some condition, do this. Sounds to me like it might preclude creativity because it, it's still a, a reliable and mechanistic way of doing things. There's a, there's some criterion that's that seems set in stone. So I guess what I'm what I'm hinting at is 
the ways in which we go about, and I think you said something along those lines too, actually, so correct me if, if I missed something here, but it sounds to me like what a creative mind does, it seems to me like what a creative mind does is the criteria by which it chooses what problems to work on are themselves ideas that arose through the creative process. Yeah. So mm-hmm. a mind in CTP theory probably won't start out with an idea like that. Or if it does, maybe that would be analogous to an inborn idea in people. It would be subject to change and could be overwritten almost immediately. Do you, do you see something like that being the case? I, I see what you're talking about. And I, I, I definitely do think that um, the process of deciding which problems to work on um, is itself a creative process, right? You have to come up with guesses and, you know, um, and, and there are different ways that you could choose to prioritize your time. And uh, I see what you're I see what you're saying, and I, this is something I've thought about before. And I think that the solution here is going to be, you know, imagine that you have the process. You, well, there's going to be some, you know, chunk of code in the implementation of CTP theory that, um, you know, decides which uh, what the problem's going or what problem the mind is going to work on next, right? What it's going to devote time to, and uh, the way that I um, imagine this problem of, you know, needing to have creativity there could be solved is that, you know, um, the the way that the mind chooses which uh, problems to work on is itself um, influenced by the content of ideas in the mind, right? So uh, what I mean here is, um, well, perhaps a way to think about it is that uh, what to work on next, right, um, is itself a problem, right? It is itself, you know, it's uh, an unsatisfied requirement, right? If you if you don't have an idea yet, it's I want to have a plan for how I'm going to spend my time in the next five minutes or something, what I'm going to, you know, spend my mental resources on. Um, and so I suspect that there is going to be a way, and I, I acknowledge that this is a problem, but it just doesn't seem... Um, like a huge problem to me, I suspect that there's going to be some way to simply uh, have the mind, the, the part of, uh, you know, the implementation that is um, responsible for um, choosing what to work on next. I think that that will just need to sort of take input from the uh, the surroundings, right, from the, or not the surroundings, from the ideas in the mind. And if it takes input from the ideas in the mind, then the mind can kind of decide what to do by, you know, shaping its ideas in the right way. Um, so it, it, that's kind of a vague description, and I, I, I don't have the details um, exactly laid down, but I think that something along those lines is going to be the solution. Right on. Okay. One more quibble I have with CTP theory that, that came to mind um, as you were talking about it is this notion of direct contradiction. You, you said when we have two ideas and they have the same binary encoding except for the first digit, um, then that constitutes a direct contradiction, um, a direct logical contradiction, if I remember correctly. Um, but children aren't born with a notion of direct logical contradiction, right? So a child wouldn't know, I mean, let alone the fact that he, he can't speak a language yet, but um, let's assume that he could somehow, and you told a child, my cat is female and my cat is not female, and let's say somehow, just to, it's starting to be a rather contrived example, but um, let's say that the child understands what all of this means, but the one thing he doesn't understand yet is that the statements are in direct logical contradiction. Um, that's, that strikes me as true, that um, logical contradictions 
what a logical contradiction is, how to detect it, what to do about it. Those are all themselves ideas that are quite complex and sophisticated in themselves. Um, I could imagine that um, you could people might may have different ideas about what it means to be in direct logical contradiction with each other. Um, how do you address that in in CTP theory, where the concept of direct logical contradiction seems to be sort of given from the start and and also set in stone? Yeah, so it, it's a good question, and I, I agree that um, sort of articulating what exactly a direct long, logical contradiction is, and you know how you can detect one. Um, that is a very complicated thing, right? Being able to articulate that and explain that in explicit terms. Um, I, I agree that that requires a lot of knowledge, but just because a, um, you know, a mind works that way on a low level, that doesn't mean it's going to be able to, you know, articulate that, right? So it, it, the mind isn't going to start out with explicit knowledge about how to detect um, direct contradictions. It's just that that's going to be what's happening on a low level, right? And so the mind could develop a theory of what's happening on a low level within itself, Right, which is to say a theory of direct logical contradictions, um, et cetera, or it could develop an incorrect theory, right? So a mind working according to this theory could, you know, be an empiricist, right? <laughs> it could be completely wrong about the way that it, its mind works. Um, and so the, the fact that it um, sort of works according to this, you know, algorithm for detecting direct logical contradictions and, you know, um, coming up with conjectures in an attempt to solve them, that doesn't imply that it's automatically going to have the correct epistemology or, you know, know how to articulate exactly what a direct logical contradiction means, right? Uh, that's just the way that it works on a low level. And the, the sort of high level properties about, you know, what it knows how to articulate, um, what its theory of knowledge is, that, um, that, stuff isn't, uh, that stuff isn't built in by CTP theory. Got it. Yeah, what you said about the empiricist mind being wrong about how it itself works um, it strikes me that really much of epistemology is just minds getting to know themselves better. But, um, okay, so what about the, what about the, the, I mean, you said, um, um it, it's indeed very complicated and it's complex and sophisticated to have an explicit theory of what it means to be in direct logical contradiction with each other, um, sort of to put that into words. And I agree um, but when, when I detect a problem, uh, say, you know, just, just a feeling of curiosity, something isn't, there's something missing there or there's something wrong. Sometimes I can't even quite put it into words yet. And, and yet my, my mind is telling me, so to speak, that there is something interesting to be explored there. So... I'm guessing that that actually could be in favor of what you just said is that there's some underlying mechanism, some low-level mechanism that detects problems in that sense. And then you, your mind still has to sort of make sense of it. Um, right. Okay. So, so in that case, it might be that, you know, there's a contradiction between two ideas that aren't uh, explicit ideas, right? Their ideas kind of in your subconscious and they are still, you know, directly logical contradict or directly logically contradictory. You know, everything does come down to that according to CTP theory. But that doesn't mean, you know, a mind is always going to know uh, is always going to know how to articulate or how to think about or how to model the contradiction. All it's going to know, um, you know, all that it's going to be built in with is the ability to notice direct logical contradictions, 
that doesn't mean that it's going to have you know a very logical way of thinking about them. It doesn't mean that it's going to know how to articulate them or how to put them into words. Um, but yeah, and so so that kind of feeling of uh, a curiosity that you can't quite articulate, I think, um, is pretty easily explained is just um, some sort of contradiction or some sort of unfulfilled requirement on a subconscious level. Okay, but then if if it was true that the mind detects this contradiction on a low level and it's just these two bit strings that are the same except for the first bit, then it, it seems weird that the the higher level mechanism or the, the higher level mind or the, the eye or whatever that consciousness is that then is actually aware of the problem. How, why couldn't it just look at those two bit strings? Not, you know, I mean, figuratively, why, if that's, if it's really as simple as comparing two bit strings, um, how come that information isn't accessible to the mind directly? Um, why does it have to, why is there an additional layer when when there is a direct contradiction readily available already within the mind? Um, yeah, so I, I think I see what you're getting at. And uh, the, the way that I um, would think about this is that um, the mind has, so um, just think about the part of the mind that is responsible for putting things into words, right? That part of the mind is going to consist of, you know, some set of ideas, right, that takes in an input, um, which is just, you know, obviously going to be a, a bit string, um, you know, of some form, and it's going to return a bit string that um, is something that, you know, the that the mind recognizes as an articulation of, you know, in explicit terms, right? So you, obviously, as I said before, you could use a bit string to represent an English sentence, right? Um, and so uh, the there'd be a part of the mind that was responsible for taking in ideas, right, uh, of any form and returning ideas in the in a um you know explicit recognized form where bits represent you know words or letters or you know something that is very easy to translate into into spoken word right and so that part of the mind would be responsible for turning thoughts into you know um, putting things into words for articulating things um, that part of the mind is going to be something that's created via conjecture and problem solving and it's not going to be perfect right so there's going to be certain uh, types of ideas that it can take in and um, you know correctly articulate but it might take in some ideas and then incorrectly articulate them or just not be able to produce any output, you know, just, you know, the program, you know, uh, runs into an error and just, you know, doesn't produce any new idea. Um, and so I guess um, to sum up what I'm saying is that the mind's uh, ability to articulate things and to think about things on an explicit level is itself something that is uh, created through conjecture and problem solving, and it isn't perfect. And so that's why the mind might be able to you know, articulate some of its ideas, but some of its ideas, it doesn't know how to articulate. It doesn't have that knowledge yet. And so all that, you know, you get is just kind of a feeling, uh, a curiosity, you know, that something's wrong um, without being able to articulate it at all. Yeah. Although I guess the question, I understand what you're saying. I, I guess the question remains though, why does the mind even evolve those higher level ideas about what it means to have a problem and how to interpret it and so forth? if that underlying information is, is readily available. Like there's, there's, according to CTP theory, there's some underlying mechanism that compares ideas directly. Um, I guess I don't fully understand why, that, why the results of that mechanism wouldn't be directly accessible. In fact, they have to be accessible at least to some degree because otherwise you would never even notice any conflict. I mean, there there has to be some sort of chain reaction set in motion for you to even experience curiosity. 
Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so they, they definitely are accessible. I'm, I'm just saying that they're not um, – the fact that you can access them doesn't mean that you know how to translate them into words, right? You know, um, So you your mind will notice there's a contradiction there, and you'll feel that. Or maybe there's some contradictions you know, that don't even make it to the level of consciousness, right? You don't even um, – it, it's hard to say, but maybe the mind – you know, just solve some uh, problems without even ever alerting your consciousness. So you don't even get that, you know, feeling of curiosity or feeling that something's wrong. Um, but but it, even when you do get that feeling, um, the, the fact that the mind has noticed a contradiction doesn't mean that it knows how to put into words, you know, all the all the details of the contradiction. I, I don't know if that I don't know if that, you know, is satisfying for the question you're trying to ask. But um, that's that's sort of the way that I think about this. Right on. Is would you explain the phenomenon that two people might not find the same problem in the same set of sentences? Uh, let's say, actually, there might be multiple answers to this. But what you just said—that does that explain that somebody who um, somebody might readily find a problem in something you say, and someone else might not? Um, yes, abs- yes. I think I think that that is well accounted for in CTP theory, and I, uh, I think the going back to the example of the calico cat um, will be nice here. So uh, imagine that you didn't know, right, that all calico cats are female, and I told you I have a problem. You know, my cat is calico, but also my cat is male, right? You would say, "What problem are you talking about? There's nothing there. That's just you know, you're just talking about your cat. I don't see any problem." Um, and the difference between you and I, you know, would be that I have this idea. Um, you know, all calico cats are female, which is allowing me to derive an idea, right? That's that's making me notice a direct contradiction. Um, whereas you just don't have that idea. And and so um, you were kind of saying earlier, it seems like you know, CDB theory is almost just describing a a science machine or a logic machine. And I, I see where you're coming from. Think uh, talking about things and all these low level details can make things seem that way. But I want to clarify that I think CDB theory absolutely can account for you know. Um, people having completely different interpretations uh, for not seeing problems that other people see, for you know having wrong ideas and for behaving completely irrationally and and so on. So uh, the the way that a mind behaves, the types of uh, problems that a mind sees depends completely on what the um, ideas within the mind are. Something that Popper stressed again and again is that the, I mean I guess really the the major breakthrough that Popper made is that he applied the notion of evolution not just to biology anymore, but he applied it to knowledge generally. Um, And so um, what Popper discovered is that our knowledge is the result of guesswork and criticism, alternating between these two. Um, Yes. So this brings us to the the thing that you and I have discussed privately and in the the Force Trans group um, here and there, which is the notion of replicators. Um, so I follow Dawkins and Deutsch, who was himself influenced by Dawkins here, that according to the neo-Darwinian picture, replicators are one of the essential ingredients of evolution. Um, so basically we're describing some, you know, for any evolutionary system, and it doesn't have to be biological, again, it could be anything, as long as it has a pool of replicators and they replicate imperfectly, which introduces variation, and there's some selection mechanism acting on this pool of replicators, you get uh, complex adaptations can arise over time. Um, but you, you've you said that you don't think, and you follow Campbell here, I think is his name, um, 
that replication or replicators, there's a difference there, actually are not a necessary ingredient <clears throat> of evolution. Can, can you elaborate on that? Yeah, sure. So um, just, just to, you know, disambiguate one thing really quickly. Um, the, the term evolution means different things to different people. Um, you know, some people are just, uh, when they hear evolution, they're just thinking of biological evolution. And in that sense, um, you know, replicators certainly are a, um, a, an essential characteristic or an essential um, part of biological evolution. And more broadly, you could say that they're an essential part of um, neo-Darwinian evolution. Um, so that includes genetics and mimetics, right? And some other uh, things as well. Um, but I, the way that I'm using the term evolution is that neo-Darwinian evolution um, isn't the only type of uh, evolution. And so kind of following from Campbell here, um, well, I, I think that uh, maybe a good question to kind of um, articulate the differences between you and I is, um, you know, how does adaptivity arise? So um, uh, now adaptivity can arise through, um, you know, the neo-Darwinian uh, kind of evolution where you have a pool of competing replicators, uh, you know, et cetera. But I think that there is, um, I think that there's something that I don't think that that's the only way that adaptivity can arise. So I think that the essential ingredients to adapt or to the creation of adaptivity, um, and here I'm following from Campbell is just blind variation and selective retention. And, and so, uh, I guess, um, a good analogy here would be that, um, you know, in computer programming, there's this idea of, you know, the genetic algorithm or the genetic, uh, genetic programming. And that is kind of an attempt to replicate the neo-Darwinian kind of evolution, uh, as a, um, uh, you know, to, to create adaptivity in computer programs. But, um, sort of evolution or genetic algorithms and genetic programming aren't the only way of using blind variation and selective retention as a computer program to produce adaptivity. Um, and there's, for instance, there's um, another method called um, simulated annealing. I don't know if you're uh, familiar with this, but it, it, it does um, the same process of blind variation and selective retention, but it doesn't have a pool of competing replicators. Instead, the way it works is uh, there's some details to it that I won't go into, but you just have a single entity, right? So, you know, you have a, you could think of it as a gene pool of size one, right? There's only one uh, genome, right? And then it produces a variation of that genome. And then it simply decides between those two. And the way in which it decides between those two um, in simulated annealing can get kind of complex. Um, but uh, you can just imagine that um, for now that, you know, it has one, it creates a variation. And if the variation is better, it picks that variation, Right. And so I think that that process, right, of just blindly varying a single object and then, you know, selectively retaining one of them, that can lead to adaptivity. Right. And so there, there's no notion of replicators. There's just uh, a single thing that becomes that is varied. And then you, you know, narrow the pool down to one. And so I think that that um, it might not be as efficient or as effective as neo-Darwinian evolution in all cases. But that is absolutely a type of evolution in the sense that it produces adaptivity through blind variation and selective retention. Yeah. One thing we've discussed um, before is, th is that there is a difference between replicators and replication. And following Dawkins here, who's said that he... So, for example, um, when he speaks of the gene, he, he explains this in, the, in, the, in his book, The Selfish Gene, when he speaks of the gene, he doesn't actually mean some specific string um, 
in the genome. He he's speaking, and I forget what the what the term for that is. So there's a there's a biological term for like the the part of the DNA string that specifies your eye color. Say um, he doesn't consider that a gene. He considers the part of the DNA string that manages to stick around unchanged over many, many generations, he considers that a single gene. So this may, this may code for many different things. Um, so likewise, we could argue in a system that doesn't employ replicators, there's still replication in the sense that even if you discard at every stage what you previously had in favor of your variation, um, or Maybe not even that, but you always only have one instance, right? Um, sure. Um, and you keep the better one, according to some criterion. You could still argue, mm -hmm. following Dawkins, that the, the those parts of the uh, thing that you're mutating, that you're varying, that weren't changed, that weren't touched by the variation, if they managed to stick around over many, many instances, over many, many um, steps of this iterative process, we would then consider that the 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 replicator. Does that make sense? Or we might not consider it a replicator, or at least not an active replicator, but there's still replication going on in the sense that something stuck around over many, many generations. Yeah, so I see what you're saying. Um, and if we're going to define um, sort of the, the neo-Darwinian notion of a replicator or replication, and that broad of a sense... Um, then, then maybe we don't really have much of a disagreement. But uh, when we've talked in the past, I've kind of gotten the sense that you think that um, AGI, right, however it's created, must involve a population of sort of competing replicating entities, right? It must involve um, replicators that are, you know, there's a bunch of copies of each replicator and each of those copies is trying to, you know, create more copies, but occasionally they, you know, fail, they uh, have an error and they, you know, produce something um, that isn't quite an exact copy, and then that that thing can go on to you know take over if that happens to be more adapted to you know the current environment, um, and and so on. Am I correct in sort of thinking that that's your model of how AGI must work? Um, I don't think I I necessarily think that it must involve replicators, but I do think okay. that that if we adopt replicators, the explanatory power of the theory goes up tremendously, and it it gains reach because we can explain many other things as well. And it is consistent with other theories of evolution, um, like genetic evolution, mimetic evolution. There is a question to be answered there. Why should the evolution in a single mind be so fundamentally different from evolution that we've observed elsewhere in the universe? And so I follow Dawkins here, who says that, I, I guess maybe the fundamental disagreement between Dawkins and Campbell if there is such a disagreement, maybe they've already talked about it. Uh, I'm not aware of it. I guess the fundamental disagreement um, comes down to is what Dawkins says that evolution works the same, roughly modulo some parameters that change. Does evolution work the same everywhere in the universe? Meaning every ev evolutionary process that we could observe, whether it be genes or memes or ideas in a single mind, do they all involve the same basic principles, yes or no? And I'm, for what I'm hearing is that Campbell would argue no, unless we kind of twist his arm a little bit and, and still manage to accommodate the notion of replication, albeit not the notion of replicators necessarily, but the notion of replication into his, his theory. 
Yeah. So um, I, I think that Campbell would say, and, and I would say, um, that there are um, there are sort of fundamental aspects that you'll see in all processes of evolution. And those aspects specifically are blind variation and selective retention. It's just that replicators aren't one of those, you know, fundamental aspects to all processes of evolution. And um, I might be misremembering what Dawkins argued, but I, I thought his argument was just that wherever life occurs in the universe, right, whenever there is, you know, complex life that looks vaguely like what we have on Earth, that must have arised through, uh, you know, neo-Darwinian evolution, um, through, you know, uh, you know, chemical replicators that, you know, eventually lead to more complex organisms. And that I agree with. I don't think that, you know, there's any complex life out there in the universe that evolved by something other than neo-Darwinism. I'm just saying that more broadly, the notion of evolution as, you know, the creation of adaptivity, um, um, I don't think that all of those processes have to uh, in involve neo-Darwinian evolution, which is to say, you know, evolution involving pools of replicators. Um, so I I'm not actually sure if what I'm saying disagrees with uh, Dawkins, though we we, um, we might just have different recollections of his argument. Um, but I suppose um, I I'm not sure that I agree, um, as you said, that including replicators in the theory um, has a lot of explanatory power. Or actually, um, bef before we talk about that, um, I, I guess uh, the reason why I think that there's um, that the uh, process of evolution that happens in the human mind and that will happen in AGI minds um, is different from the uh, the process of evolution that happens in the biosphere or in the memosphere um, is that, uh, as Popper argued, contradiction must play a really important role here. Um, so whenever two ideas are uh, you know, contradictory, that is a criticism, that is a problem, you know, in my way of thinking about things. And so uh, there isn't really this notion of a contradiction in, uh, you know, uh, genetic or even really mimetic evolution. Um, and so I think that the the fact that there, that we have to account for contradiction at kind of the root level of how um, the mind must work, I think that that sort of hints that there's some different type of thing going on here. Um, and, and it's it's more about individual ideas contradicting other individual ideas rather than, you know, a bunch of copies of ideas competing for dominance in some, you know, fitness landscape. Yeah, maybe. It definitely could be the case, although I think this could be accommodated um, relatively easily within the neo-Darwinian model of the mind where uh, we instead promote the idea of contradiction from a lower level concept to um, a higher level concept. So where you argue that a contradiction or detecting whether or not something is a contradiction, that is itself an explanatory theory. So it, it, it is quite sophisticated, and so it has the appearance of design, and so it must have itself arisen out of an evolutionary process. It is not built in uh, at the bottom, so to speak. So within a mind that involves replicators, um, at the bottom, so to speak, where those replicators compete, some cooperate, some compete, and so forth. Um, there wouldn't be any direct notion of, of um, contradiction. That there might be ideas, and sooner or later this seems to happen in every mind, um, because it's useful for criticism maybe, that sooner or later um, an idea evolves that happens to incorporate an explanatory theory of what it means to contradict something. And so then the mind can then use that to criticize other ideas. Whenever an idea arises in that idea pool, that is a very useful survival technique because it, it gets itself um, invoked a lot by the mind to criticize other ideas. Um, 
So I don't know if the, if the notion of contradiction, though I agree that it is of fundamental importance for creativity, um, like Popper said, um, I don't know if it has to exist on a low level. Okay, interesting. Um, yeah, I guess just if, I'm, I'm not sure that it would really, you know, make sense to call it contradiction if it's just some, you know, uh, something that some evolved idea, you know, considers two ideas to be, um, contradictory. I, I don't know. It just, uh, I, I think that, I think that, um, the notion of contradiction needs to be more fundamental than that. Not just something that might evolve and might be useful once it evolves. I, I think that, um, I mean, my guess following from Popper is that that is, um, you know, one of the most essential characteristics of how the mind works is detecting, um, ideas or detecting contradictions between ideas. And so uh, I should say, I think that your, um, you know, the, the vaguely, your, the, the sort of neo-Darwinian model of AGI that you've proposed, I think that uh, a model like that could um, exist and could um, be interesting and could have genuine evolution going on there. I just don't think that it would be much like a, um, you know, a conscious mind. I don't think that it would really be an AGI. It would just be some form of kind of simulated uh, Darwinism, which would still be, you know, an, an interesting achievement. But I just, uh, I, I'm not seeing, um, I'm not seeing how exactly um, we can be, how exactly, what exactly is making you think that this is actually going to be a mind in the same way that we have minds. Right. I mean, there's several reasons for that. Um, our listeners may not necessarily be familiar with with my neo-Darwinian theory of the mind unless they've read my book, and many of them yeah. won't, won't have. Um, so we sort of have to decide how much we want and, and to how much detail we want to go there. I disagree with you that contradictions are of fundamental importance. I agree with you on Popper there. Um, the problem I see... And one of the problems that I think need to be solved, I like to think I solved it if you want to count that, but um, one of the problems I see with Popper's philosophy is that he describes this interplay of conjecture and refutation as an evolutionary um, phenomenon, which I think is correct. But the problem that remains is that conjectures themselves always, I think, have the appearance of design themselves. So... And the criticisms themselves do too. So it's not just that the that I think arguing that um, and and you didn't argue this, but but Popper did, I think, arguing that um, conjecture and criticism sort of edge each other on, so to speak, and so improve each other. I think that isn't quite sufficient to say to explain the appearance of design that both conjecture and criticism have by themselves. Um, every conjecture. Okay, I suppose I'm not just. Go ahead. Or, sorry, I guess I was just going to say, what exactly do you mean by conjecture and criticism having uh, an appearance of design? I'm not really sure that I get what you mean there. Well, so so um, an example of problem solving that I've I've given in the past is I think I thought I put my keys on my kitchen table, and now I go look for them and I can't find them. That that would constitute a problem in the very practical sense, and so now any any solution I think of. I mean, so one thing I could say, oh, maybe I put them on my desk, or maybe they're still in my pocket, or I left them at my friend's house, whatever. All of these have the appearance of design in the sense that they, they all make sense, they're well-formed, um, 
both in terms of language, in terms of logic. They don't have any internal contradictions. You know, they're all, they all already serve the purpose um, of solving this problem. Now, we may then find through criticism that most of them are false and only one of them is going to be true. But there's something going on underneath the hood here very rapidly that generates this conjecture, maybe the keys are already in my pocket, so then I go check my pocket. But presumably, the vast majority of ideas that are involved in this process never even come to the surface of this conscious exploration. Right, definitely. And so that is what I mean is that the, the conjectures that we become aware of, those, are, those have the appearance of design because, like I said, they're well-formed, they don't have internal contradictions and so forth. Um, so that is why I'm guessing that there is a much larger underlying evolutionary process going on. And, and I think that I would imagine that this process involves replicators. Right. Okay. Well, so I, I'm with you that, um, you know, there must be a lot of, uh, there, there, the mind must be coming up with far more conjectures than actually rise to the level of consciousness. Right. Um, and I think, I think Popper would agree there probably, you know, um, so, uh, I, but it just, um, I'm not seeing how introducing the idea of replicators um, really solves that problem at all. I, I think the, the solution to that problem, right, the, the problem of the appearance of design is simply there is some kind of evolutionary process going on and we are only seeing, you know, a, a fraction of the results of that process, right? We're only seeing the most well-adapted ideas. Um, but, you know, it, it could just be that the mind is not, that the evolution there, uh, the evolution going on there doesn't, isn't the, the neo-Darwinian kind. It isn't the kind that involves replicators as kind of more the kind that I'm advocating for, where it's just, you know, there's only ever a single instance of each idea and new ideas are created as sort of uh, blind variations and recombinations of existing ideas. Um, and so I just, um, I, I, I get the problem you're pointing at, um, but I just don't see how the notion of replicators adds anything to the solution rather than just um, thinking of the solution as being, um, you know, some kind of evolutionary process, maybe involving replicators, maybe not. Sure. Um, well, I think the, the notion of replicators adds several beneficial things to a theory of the mind, which I can get into if you like. But even in this particular instance, um, you, uh, if I recall correctly what you just said, you did grant that there does seem to be a vast number of ideas involved in coming up with a good conjecture, say. Yeah, definitely. Um, so what you get when you have a pool of replicators is when a replicator replicates, it's the original sticks around, right? So the, the number of, the, of those, and again, modulo competition and any self-regulating forces that exist within that, that pool of replicators, um, you have several copies of that replicator floating around in that pool at any given time. Um, it seems to me that in something like CTP theory, doesn't the, or in general, in something that doesn't employ replication, only variation and selective retention, you always only keep a single instance of an idea. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So it seems to me, just in terms of tractability here, you would lose the vast majority of, of possibilities within that idea space. You would have to generate, you would have to employ selective retention, or you'd have to employ variation at every stage. But so you're basically, if you picture it as a tree, you're going down a specific branch of that tree 
but losing potentially all of the other branches that you could go down. And so um, the, most of the tree remains hidden, it seems to me. Um, I, I don't see what you're losing if you only have one copy of each idea, right? You still have all the information there, right? You still have, um, you know, you still have the all the ideas, at least one copy of them, um, to use as kind of the basis of new conjectures. So I don't really see what you're losing by not having um, many copies of uh, each idea. So in, in Campbell's model of of blind variation and selective retention, does he once you make a variation to an idea and it is better than the original, does he keep the original? Does it stick around or does he discard it? Well, well, so, so Campbell didn't have a um, particular, you know, theory of AGI or how, of how or, the mind works. Sure. In, in CTP mm -hmm. theory, how you picture it. Sorry. So go ahead and ask the question again. When, just so I um, make sure I answer it correctly. When, when you vary an idea blindly, and by mm -hmm. some criterion, say explanatory power or whatever it might be, um, right. you then decide that the variation, the variant is better than the original. Does the original get to live on or is it discarded? So uh, the, if there, um, so conjectures, generally speaking, are motivated by problem solving, right? So the mind is going to be creating conjectures in an attempt to solve a problem. So if there is a problem with some idea, um, you know, an idea A, and then you create a, a variant idea, an idea B, right, that, um, that uh, you know, is based on A, so it's a variant of A, um, and it turns out that B doesn't have the problem that A had and, you know, maintains all the explanatory power in terms of, you know, it satisfies all the relevant requirements, um, then that, uh, well, then A will be discarded, right, because it's causing a contradiction and because it doesn't need it to, result, uh, to resolve the, the requirements anymore because B is now doing that. Um, so, so in that case, A would be discarded and B would be kept around. Um, if, if A actually isn't problematic, um, you know, and, uh, and there's no reason to get rid of it, um, then yeah, you could, you could have an idea and a variation of that idea, both in the mind. There's no reason you couldn't have that if they aren't, you know, causing any kind of contradiction. Okay. Does so that make sense? Does that answer your question? Yeah, I'm still processing it. So basically what you're saying is it depends sometimes the variant and the original both stick around if there's no contradiction between them? Yeah, so uh, the mind, broadly speaking, the mind only gets rid of ideas um, when it uh, when one of those ideas is involved in a contradiction, and so getting rid of it solves that contradiction, solves the problem. Um, and so, you know, if you have an idea and a variant of that idea, and neither of them is involved in any problems, then yeah, you can, you can stick, you can keep both of them around. Um, but, you know, if one of them is involved in a contradiction, um, then maybe you get rid of them if that helps solve the problem. Yeah, basically that brings us back to the notion of contradiction as the fundamental fundamental regulating principle. Yeah, um, yeah, that that might be our our biggest disagreement. I, it seems to me that um, contradiction doesn't just need to be present; it kind of needs to be present on a low level. And that kind of has to be one of the fundamental driving forces for the mind. Whereas if I'm understanding your argument correctly, you think contradiction might be important, but it's something that can sort of evolve um, later. And it's just something that the mind can kind of discover for itself. Is that right? For sure. Yeah. Theories involving contradiction are them, them, themselves have the appearance of design. So I think they must have um, arisen through an evolutionary process themselves. And I, I mean, we see this all the time, right, where people have 
to others clearly contradicting theories in their, in their minds, but don't discard either one. They're happy to just accommodate both. Um, now, I guess you could argue within the CTP framework, you could say, well, there, there can still be higher level theories about contradictions. The contradictions you're speaking of, those are only lower level. Well, it, it, there's that. And then there's also um, that, you know, if I think two theories in your head are contradictory, um, but you don't see that, that might be because, you know, they're only contradictory in the context of some third theory, which I have and that you don't have. So again, um, if I just return to the, um, you know, the calico cat example, if you tell me my cat is calico and then you tell me my cat is male, right? And you don't seem to notice any contradiction between that, but I do. Maybe that's because I know, you know, all calico cats are female and you don't know that. Does that make sense? Right. But there are, definitely. Um, but there are cases where people are just sort of in denial. Um, they have the knowledge that in principle tells them that their ideas are contradicting, but they can be ideas that they hold very dear. Um, and so they just lie to themselves. I think people do that a lot, actually. Um, yeah, I don't want yeah. to paint. That's definitely something that can happen. I don't want to paint a cynical picture of people. I think people in general are great. I'm just saying, um, yeah, definitely a lot of people are happy to accommodate cognitive dissonance. And so the, the question then, even though the knowledge for how to resolve that dissonance is in principle accessible to them, they have generated that knowledge. Um, so in that instance, um, it strikes me what, what's going on, I think, is to bring it back into a neo-Darwinian picture, is for some reason um, the idea that would resolve the conflict finds itself in heavy competition with the, with the ideas that are happy to facilitate the conflict and to keep it around. And those ideas that facilitate the conflict have an easier time spreading through that pool of ideas and therefore are more numerous and stronger. And therefore the mind keeps the conflict rather than resolving it. Uh, why would they be more likely to spread throughout the mind? I don't, I don't see why those would necessarily be stronger. Or are you just saying that they could be? And in that case, you would get that kind of, you know, irrationality or hang up. Yeah, the, the details are always going to change. They're always going to vary depending on the ideas involved. The answer would be the same yeah. as as to why why do some species spread through the biosphere better than others? It's, yeah. It's okay. A, so it's just kind of a case by case thing. Yeah, okay. it's a complex answer. There's there's no simple answer. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. So just um like the the problem of you know obviously people and AGIs must be able to you know have irrationalities and hangups right uh, that that's something that humans can do so sh surely that um must be something that AGIs are at least capable of even though you know obviously we don't want them to um but that that is something that their minds must be capable of housing um and I, I haven't really considered that in the framework of CTB theory before but just kind of off the top of my head the way that I would um, model something like that is that, um, so there are two, uh, say, so there are two contradictory ideas, like, you know, my cat is uh, male and my cat is calico. Um, and, you know, there's an obvious solution to this problem. And maybe the person is even aware of a way to resolve that contradiction, but there is some desire or some requirement in the mind, right? That getting rid of either of those ideas would, um, would stop, right? And, um, or would, uh, you know, leave unfulfilled, and so uh, for that reason that they don't want to get rid of either of them. And so, uh, you know, it's kind of odd in the, uh, in the example of, you know, my cat being 
calico and male, but, you know, imagine that somebody is really, really attached to the idea that their cat is male and the idea that their cat is calico, right? And even though they know those ideas are contradictory, you know, the fact that they're so attached, which in lower level terms means that they have, you know, some sort of requirements that they need fulfilled, that those ideas are fulfilling and that no other ideas are fulfilling. Um, in that case, you know, they would see the contradiction, right? But they would just, you know, withstand the cognitive dissonance because it's going to leave, um, you know, because otherwise they'd have to, you know, think about those desires and find some other way to fulfill them or to, you know, remove the desires by getting rid of whatever caused them in the first place. Yeah. I mean, in general, what you what you just pointed out at the beginning there is, I think, is super important that most models of AGI miss entirely is that an AGI is capable of having irrational irrationalities, hangups, um, bad ideas, you know, all these kinds of things. I think most yeah, most definitely. models of AGI just forget about that completely. They they just want some super superhuman or super intelligence that just solves problems reliably, which which right. both you and I agree on can't exist. Um, mm-hmm. In CTP theory, when you and remind me if I'm, or, or tell me if I'm remembering this correctly, please, because um, we just touched on it five minutes ago. You said a theory is only discarded if its variant is in, is considered better and is in direct contradiction with it. Is that correct? Um, well, not a, it's not just if the variant is in direct contradiction with it. Say you have uh, two ideas, A and B, and A and B are in conflict, and then you create a variant of A, um, we'll call it C, right? Um, and C satisfies all the requirements that A satisfies, so it maintains all the explanatory power. Um, and then so you would, might get rid of A because it contradicts B, right? Not because it contradicts C. So it doesn't have to contradict its own variant. It's just that if it's involved in some contradiction with some idea in the mind, and you know its variant is a satisfying replacement for it um, in the sense of you know having all the explanatory power and fulfilling all the requirements, then that's the case in which you would get rid of an idea. Got it. So at that point... That idea is gone. The mind, like it's, it's either deleted explicitly or garbage collected at some point. The the mind doesn't have any remaining reference to it. Um. So, I mean, the, the simplest answer is yes. Um. But I mean, it, it it might be worth keeping around at least like a copy of old discarded ideas just to kind of maybe be the basis of new conjectures in the future. Um, and so, like, it, it wouldn't be an active idea in the mind, you know, producing implications and interacting with other ideas. But it, it, if it turns out to be, you know, um, efficient to keep around a copy as the basis of future conjectures, then, you know, surely you could do that. And that, that wouldn't be in violation of CDP theory at all. Yeah, okay. Um, this is one of the, it brings us to this notion of memory that, and I don't mean memory in the sense of, um, you know, storage space on a computer. I mean, memory as in remembering things. Um, basically, what I was trying to see is if, if CTP theory can accommodate the what we know about how memory works or seems to work. Um, I think many of the newer scientific theories there are completely wrong. I'm guessing you may at least partially agree there. Um, we'll get into that later. But um, yeah, one of the... I mean, if you can accommodate that within CTP theory, because I think memory as in remembering things is just one of the emergent properties that a creative mind has. Um, I don't think there is, um, I don't think there's anything special or extra going on. Um, you know, there's, I don't think there's a separate 
committing something to memory algorithm. I think it's part of the creative process. Um, but it sounds like you could accommodate this in CTP theory, but you would need a little bit of extra logic there. Um, like, like you just said, you would, in, in addition to the ideas that are still alive, so to speak, that, that are still accepted by them, or that are still um, in sort of this main, how should I put it, um, in, the, in the main idea pool, I don't know if you use that term actually, but that set of ideas, you, you just introduced this idea that you could have a separate set of ideas, of, of things, of ideas that you've discarded in the past. Um, Right. So actually, I, I um, when I recently when I was writing the the new article that I put out about CTP theory, I initially used the word idea pool, but I didn't want to you know steal that from you and get our two theories confused. So I just called it like the idea set or something. So sure. uh, if, if <laughs> so, for the sake of you know not being confusing, I tend not to use the word idea pool because I don't want to apply that there's anything neo Darwinian going on. Um, right. But but um, so. I see what you're saying, and this is something I've thought about before because, you know, being able to remember things is really important. And I actually don't think that sort of the normal process of just memory requires that um, specific, uh, like, sort of additional system that I was talking about. That's just sort of, you know, maybe an optimization thing for, for the process of conjecture. But I think that actually normal CTP theory without that um, addition can still account for memory, um, though it's, it's, it requires a little bit of explanation to see exactly how it would do that. Go ahead. And so... Um, yeah, sure. So if, uh, again, I'll use the example of, you know, the perihelion of Mercury and replacing Newton's theory with general relativity. Say you're a scientist, right? And you read, you know, Einstein's new paper about this theory called general relativity um, that is supposedly has all the explanatory power of Newton's theory, but doesn't have the rel uh, the contradictions with uh, that Newton's theory had. Um, so if you read that theory or if you read that paper and you're convinced, um, you don't just forget that what Newton's theory says, right? You don't just, right? It's in a certain sense, general relativity replaced Newton's theory in your mind. Um, it replaced it as, you know, your model of the correct theory of how objects move under gravity, but it doesn't replace it in the sense of you just can't even remember what Newton's theory is anymore. And how, how um, this would work on a low level is imagine that you have um, an idea that says um, Newton's theory, uh, is governed, or Newton's theory says motion is governed by these equations, or gravity is governed by these equations, right? And then you have another idea which says Newton's theory is true, right? So if if you have that first idea, right, which is um, the you know in, in quote Newton's theory says X end quote, right? And then you have another theory uh, quote Newton's theory is true end quote. Then if you get rid of that second idea then you still have what Newton's theory says in your mind. You just don't any longer think that it's true. Does that make sense? So, so you could still have, you know, um, like, so I could have an idea, I, um, you know, I know that Newton's theory is false, but in my mind, I have, you know, an idea, presumably, that says something akin to Newton's theory says, you know, F equals MA and, you know, the gravity equation, et cetera. Um, and the fact that I have a, uh, the, the fact that I have that description of what Newton's theory says doesn't mean that I believe that Newton's theory is true. Um, and so, you know, Newton's theory says X is still a fact about the world, right? That's, it's not, it's not false that Newton's theory says this just because Newton's theory is false. And so that's kind of how I imagine that CTP theory would be able to, you know, accommodate even ideas that it's decided aren't true anymore. Um, it, it would just, uh, um, you know, you would have some of the rem remnants of the old theory, you just wouldn't have the idea that those remnants are actually true. You would just have, you'd have the ability to say, 
oh, well, Newton's prediction or Newton's theory would predict this. You just don't say this is true, right? It's just that's what Newton's theory would predict. But of course, Newton's theory is wrong. So that's not actually true. Right. Okay. I understand. So then let's invert it. How do you explain the phenomenon of forgetting in CTP theory? Yeah. Um, so that's an interesting question. Um, if you just sort of imagine how CTP theory would work um, in a basic sense, I imagine that the mind would just sort of, uh, you know, keep growing, right? New ideas would just keep getting created as, a, you know, part of the problem solving process as part of conjecture. And the, the set of ideas in the mind might just grow without end. Um, now, that's problematic if we're actually intending to implement this on a real computer because we have memory constraints. Um, and so, you know, in a real implementation of CTP theory, unless you're just planning on, you know, continuously buying more hard drives to have more memory space, <laughs> um, you're going to need to uh, have some mechanism for saying, okay, once there are 10 million ideas in the mind, we have to cut back a little bit, right? You, whenever the 10 million and one idea is created, we need to get rid of one just so that we have enough memory space. Um, and, you know, exactly how you would choose which ideas to uh, discard is kind of a, one of these, uh, another sort of small open problem with CTP theory. I don't mean small as in it's not important. It's just that I don't feel the theory is sort of developed to the point where we can really make, um, we, where we can really make, uh, you know, concrete answers to that. I think that once we have sort of the explanatory power problem solved um, and we're actually, you know, thinking about implementing the AGI fully, um, then those ideas will be kind of what we need to think about. Um, and, and so I guess just for now, the forgetting will happen by some mechanism that exists to conserve storage space. Um, and it's just, I don't know exactly how that mechanism will work exactly. Sure. Um, okay. Um, I bring it up because, I mean, for one, because I was just interested in how CTP theory might solve this, but also because I think that is something that the neo-Darwinian theory of the mind has going for it, which is that phenomena like memory, and but also the inverse, forgetting, um, simply are simply solved just by virtue of describing the mind as as this arena of replicators, because you've basically forgotten an idea at the point that all the replicators that encoded it die out. So there, there's there's nothing really left to explain there. But let's go back to the difference between Dawkins and Campbell then, which the point that Dawkins brings home repeatedly in The Selfish Gene is that evolution is this process that um, it, favors, it favors three things, um, and I think only those three things. Um, that is copying fidelity, longevity, and fecundity. Um, so how accurate are the copies? Evolution will favor replicators that are very good at copying themselves, that don't make a lot of mistakes. It will favor replicators that have longevity, meaning those that manage to stick around longer than their competitors will be favored by evolution. And fecundity in the sense that those that create more copies of themselves will be favored by evolution. So if these are the driving forces of evolution, then again, it's I wonder if what... It seems to me that what Campbell is describing is sort of a a version of evolution that, I'm using the term very loosely here, but that denotationally looks the same, but structurally is entirely different. Um, and in fact, all these driving factors, these three driving factors, they all depend on replication. 
And so it seems to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, that Campbell's model of evolution misses those three. Am I wrong about that? Um, so I, I see what you're saying. And I guess uh, I think the, the way to resolve this problem here is just that um, Dawkins um, is using the term evolution in a more uh, sort of in a, in a sort of smaller scope way than Campbell or I am using it. Um, and what I mean is that, uh, so, so as I said before, um, I consider evolution just to be sort of any process which leads to adaptivity. And I think that any process which does consistently lead to adaptivity is going to have to involve blind variation and selective retention. And that's what Campbell argued. But when Dawkins uses the word evolution, right, in the selfish gene, say, he's referring to biological evolution, which is understandable given that he is a, um, you know, a uh, evolutionary biologist, or, well, I should say Amnimatic he's referring evolution. to, yeah, that's what I was about to clarify. He's, he's referring to what I would just call neo-Darwinian evolution. Um, so that includes, you know, genetics and memetics and some other stuff as well. Um, and, and so would he, when Dawkins says the word evolution, he means something, um, more specific than what I or Campbell mean when uh, we talk about evolution. And actually I, I might not even be um, representing Campbell here. I should probably just speak about what I think, cause I'm not really sure exactly if he uses evolution in exactly the same way that I do. Um, but the way that I think about it is that um, evolution is just any process that creates adaptivity through blind variation and selective retention. And neo-Darwinian evolution is a kind of evolution that involves the, uh, you know, the pools of replicators uh, that Dawkins describes. And so I think that Dawkins is correct in saying that, you know, those three characteristics are what leads to the success of replicators in neo-Darwinian evolution. But I think it's a mistake to try to apply that to um, evolution in the broader sense, because there just simply isn't replication in all forms of evolution, such as sort of simulated annealing, as I talked about earlier. There's, there's not really, um, you know, the neo-Darwinian notion of replication there. Um, and so talking about fecundity just doesn't really make sense. So um, I think that Dawkins, you know, those three characteristics, those are a good description of uh, how neo-Darwinian evolution works, but they don't apply outside of the scope of neo-Darwinian evolution. Yeah, I, I wonder if, I mean, Dawkins certainly seems to speak in universal terms in The Selfish Gene. Um, it's just when I read the book, it certainly seems, it seemed to me that what he was describing was a universal, a universal phenomenon. I don't recall, I might certainly be wrong about it, whether he left room for any other models of evolution. I guess it would be really interesting to find if Dawkins ever addressed Campbell's suggestion directly. Yeah, um, it would be interesting because, yeah, like I, I think that there is something very uh, universal and deep about neo-Darwinian evolution. Um, you know, I, I agree with Dawkins, as I said before, that anywhere that life arises in the universe, it will be through neo-Darwinian processes. It's just that, you know, um, a slightly deeper understanding of what is going on on a logical and epistemological level um, reveals that, uh, well, neo-Darwinian evolution is, you know, it's common, you know, it's happened a lot in our universe, so it's easy to see. Um, not all types of evolution, which is to say, you know, adaptive processes, not all have to um have replicators. Um, it's possible to get, you know, an adaptive, uh, it's possible to get adaptivity without replicators at all. Um, and so I think that, I don't know what Dawkins um, thinks about this. I, you know, I might be misremembering, um, you know, exactly. You might be right. Maybe he does think that it's completely universal. 
Um, and in that case, I, I would disagree with Dawkins. I think he's slightly wrong. It's it's quite universal. It's quite important, but he's making it out to be a little bit more universal than it actually is. Yeah, it does. Um, it does bring up the question of why Dawkins then thought of memes as being replicators when he could have. Um, it's it's a little more difficult to say in hindsight because once you understand meme theory, it's harder to imagine how that could have worked without replication. But when he was coming up with it. Um, Assuming Campbell's work was already done, he could have been aware of it, maybe not, but um, it seems to me that he could have conceived of memes as arising through something like simulated annealing and replication just sort of being a, you know, the simulated annealing could happen within a mind and then the replication could just be sort, sort of incidental, that it spreads from mind to mind, might not be really that important in meme theory. But in any case, that, that of course, is not a conclusive criticism at all of what Campbell is suggesting. It's just uh, a curiosity of, of history, so to speak, that, that Dawkins didn't mm -hmm. phrase it in those terms. Um, so I, I do think that, uh, I don't think that meme theory needs to be, you know, rephrased as not working in terms of replicators. I mean, I, I do think that um, memetics is a neo-Darwinian process. Right. It, it, mine, or, so ideas do replicate when they pass from, you know, one individual to another. Um, it's just that uh, I don't think that um, ideas replicate within a mind. I don't think that they ever create exact copies of themselves within a mind. Or if, if they do in the human mind, I think that's just kind of, you know, a peculiarity of the way that humans evolved. And it's not essential to, you know, the epistemological um, logic of what's going on. Um, and so I, I think that meme theory being um, phrased in neo-Darwinian terms is perfectly fine. Because once you're talking about the spread of ideas from one person to another, it makes sense to talk about them um, in terms of uh, in terms of neo-Darwinian replicators. Um, I'm not actually sure if Dawkins himself uh, specifically claimed that it's sort of a neo-Darwinian process within a mind. You can kind of just treat the mind as uh, a black box in in mimetic theory. Absolutely. Um, and yeah, so so um, the exact the exact you know the, whether or not the mind itself uses replicators um, to create adaptivity, um, it doesn't really affect whether or not you know memes spreading between minds uh, should be thought of in a neo-Darwinian fashion. Yes, no, I absolutely agree. I don't think Dawkins, at least in the selfish gene, talks about whether or not ideas replicate within a mind. Um, I think he only Yeah, I don't recall about, that either. I don't, I, I think he only, I think you're right, he only speaks about ideas replicating across minds. Um, so yes, within meme theory, it can remain perfectly neo-Darwinian without introducing the notion of replication within a mind, and the mind can just simply be a black box that either works to also neo-Darwinian uh, mechanisms or CTP theory mechanisms. But right. um, in any case, okay, although we disagree on the role of replication within a mind, we do, we should clarify, I think we actually agree on the vast majority of the implications of Papirian epistemology on AGI research. Um, Definitely. I yeah, you, even though we have spent most of this, you know, talking about our disagreements, you and I are probably closer <laughs> than almost any two people in the world in terms of, you know, how we think AGI will work compared to, you know, other AGI researchers. We are, we are, you know, kindred spirits. I agree. You mentioned early on in this conversation that um, perhaps, or maybe I'm misremembering that perhaps you used to think before you learned, before you read the beginning of Infinity, that you were much closer to maybe more conventional to approaches to AGI. Were you interested in building AGI before building the beginning of infinity, before reading the beginning of infinity? Yeah, so I was definitely interested in AI, and you know, I think anybody who has an interest in AI, um, you know, has somewhat of an interest in AGI, though that might not be, you know, their um, their immediate goal. And so I, I was interested in kind of getting into the field of 
AI, um, you know, and this was in, when I was in uh, high school and college, when I was, you know, reading the beginning of Infinity, I think. Um, and so I, I kind of, you know, I liked uh, AI and machine learning and stuff. And I had, you know, uh, some thoughts about AGI, but um, it, it wasn't really until uh, reading the beginning of Infinity that I really started focusing on AGI rather than just AI and machine learning. Right. Okay. So what what do you think, what, or how has Papyrian epistemology informed your opinions on narrow AI and, and machine learning and so forth? Yeah. So um, I, I think that you and I mostly agree here and that... Uh, well, the, the epistemological framework behind, um, you know, a lot of sort of machine learning, and this is often less left implicit, you know, people don't explicitly talk about this, but the epistemological framework that's being assumed is kind of an empiricist inductivist uh, framework. So it's just assumed that you can, uh, you know, derive the truth about the world from uh, sense data. Um, you don't need to, you know, blindly conjecture, you just need to sort of apply the right inductive process and, you know, do the right computation on the input data, and then you get the right answer. Um, and so I think that the fact that that is sort of underlying most uh, machine learning algorithms um, means that those algorithms are never going to lead to um, true AGI unless, uh, you know, the machine learning community um, comes to a much better understanding of epistemology and realizes that they need to, you know, be utilizing radically different methods. Yeah, I agree. What is your opinion of, um, of neuroscience? So neuroscience, uh, I know you've talked a lot about how um, you see sort of neuroscience as a, um, as sort of a dead end. And I agree with you mostly. Um, I think that neuroscience isn't likely to lead to AGI uh, anywhere in the near future because of where the field is at right now. But I do think that if you imagine a sufficiently advanced uh, field of neuroscience, maybe to the extent where um, we could just scan a brain on like a neuron by neuron level while a person was still alive and, you know, read the internal state of every neuron and, you know, all the connections between them and, uh, you know, then simulate that on a computer if we had a sufficiently good understanding of how neurons work internally. Um, if you did that scan and then simulated it on a computer and played it forward, you would have what could be called an AGI. You would have, you know, a, a human mind that could do anything that any other human mind could do just running on a computer. And so I think that a sufficiently advanced neuroscience could lead us to AGI. But um, I think that that's very, very far away. And I'm hoping that, you know, kind of the epistemological approach will get us there much sooner than, um, you know, waiting for incredibly advanced scanning technology. Yeah, let me clarify that um, I think neuroscience is a dead end when it comes to AGI research. Of, co of course, I think neuroscience, you know, when it comes to studying brain disease or stuff like that is the way to go because right. brain diseases yeah. are a hardware issue, whereas diseases of the mind, I think neuroscience is completely misplaced there because that's a software issue. I mean, there may be some things where, you know, just like when you spill a cup of water on your laptop and it messes with the hardware, then it will mess with the software in a certain sense too. Right. But, yeah. um, there can arise software issues, even though the hardware is working perfectly correctly. Um, in which case neuroscience couldn't possibly help us, um, diagnosing or more importantly, curing those ailments. But yes, I agree with you that, um, applied to AGI, it's, it's mostly a dead end. And, um, I also agree with you, though, that the field of, I think it's called whole brain emulation, where you simply, you just scan, um, if, if you have a sufficiently small resolution, 
um, that buys you something, namely you don't require an understanding anymore of what it is that happens in that brain. Um, exactly. <laughs> so it's it's sort of a it's sort of a convenient way to do it. Not convenient in the sense that it would be easy, but yes, you don't require an understanding. You can simply run that forward, and it would just sort of work. But um, yes, you would still be very reliant on the underlying hardware structure of the brain. And of course, what we're really after is we want to explain how AGI works, because then we can, uh, well, for one, because it's just fascinating, but also because um, then we could actually implement it from scratch as software without needing any understanding of the brain. Um, I, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I do think that potentially whole brain emulation will happen first, though. Um, if the... And that we should focus efforts on it. I do go back and forth on it a little bit, but um, sometimes I do wonder if we should focus efforts on whole brain emulation just for the purpose of getting people off the planet. Um, right. Because once you run on a computer that's not the brain, you're then untethered and you can, you know, you can, it would be trivial to send people to other other planets. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what, what it, you know, creating the first AGI, whether it's through epistemology or through whole brain emulation, that'll be a huge step forward in, you know, mitigating existential risks for the future of humanity. You know, once we can become a multi-planet um, civilization, you know, it's it would be much harder for, you know, a stray asteroid or gamma ray burst to end our civilization. So, yeah, it's I, I agree that um, I think it's definitely worth putting resources towards uh, whole brain emulation and whatever fields of neuroscience are, you know, involved since obviously we're far away, um, from actually being able to do that. Um, I, I don't, I mean, following kind of, you know, Deutsch's arguments about the impossibility of predicting future knowledge, I guess, you know, we can't really say whether or a whole, whole brain emulation or a deep epistemological understanding of what's necessary for AGI. Uh, we can't say which of those will come first. Um, so it's, it's definitely worth focusing on both. I, I agree there. Yeah. I guess there is one remaining thing that we haven't really touched on that we could touch on, if you like, which is consciousness. I don't think we've talked about consciousness much, you and I. What is your... No, I don't think we have. What is your take on it? Any any thoughts on it? Have you thought about it at all? Yeah, so it, it is something I've thought about. And, you know, I think that the hard problem is a real problem. I, uh, I, I wish that I had, you know, an answer to the problem of consciousness, but I really don't. Um, and... Uh, I think that uh, David Deutsch has conjectured that um, a solution to AGI will be a solution to the problem of consciousness and vice versa, right? We'll have a, we'll have an understanding of why we're conscious once we have, you know, a theory of AGI. And um, I would hope that that's the case too. You know, I, I hope that it's true that, you know, we can solve both problems at once and that they'll turn out to be um, connected like that. And that certainly seems like a reasonable conjecture. You know, we have these two open big problems about the mind um, it wouldn't be surprising if it turned out that they were related. Unfortunately, um, CTP theory, as I've developed it so far, hasn't given me any insight whatsoever as to how um, consciousness works. So that could be that uh, an indication, you know, if Deutsch's uh, conjecture is correct, that CTP theory isn't going to work, right? Or that it, um, you know, uh, it, I'll, I'll need to have a better understanding of consciousness before I can make it work. Or it might just be an indication that Deutsch's conjecture is wrong, right? You know, that the hard problem of consciousness is actually just a completely separate issue from AGI, and we can create AGI without a, a solution to it. So um, I, I wish that I had more to say on the subject, but all I really have to say is, you know, it's, it's baffling. Um, you know, I, I, don't, I don't have a solution to it, though I wish I did. Right. 
what do you think of Popper's conjecture that it, it has to do with disappointed expectations? Yeah, so I definitely think um, that that is part of it. Um, and to kind of phrase that in C2P theory terms, you know, any disappointed expectation would be a, you know, contradiction between the predictions of some theory and, you know, uh, another theory, which, you know, interprets since data to say, you know, this, that didn't happen, that prediction didn't happen. Um, and so if, if that's true, then, you know, perhaps that could be in integrated into CTP theory. Um, and that, that seems like a reasonable conjecture. I, I think that there's something there, but, um, uh, I, I don't really have much more to say on it than that. I don't, um, it, it, well, it's certainly not, you know, a complete theory. That's, you know, that's more of the beginning, uh, or, you know, a suggestion for uh, a real theory rather than a theory itself. So, um, yeah, I, I wish I had more to say on the subject, but I don't think I do. Okay. No, this is great. Well then, um, it was great having you, Ella. It was just fascinating. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you for having me. This was a great conversation. Likewise. Where can people find you? Yeah, so um, I am a blogger for fourstrands.com, um, and so you can go there. I recently published an article on uh, CDP theory, kind of giving more um, details than I was able to get into in this conversation. I also have my own website, uh, ellahepner.com. Hepner is spelled H-O-E-P-P-N-E-R. There's a silent O there, and I also post all of my writings there. So um, either of those two places would be a good place to sort of uh, read what I have to say. And I'm also on Twitter at Ella underscore Hepner if you want to follow me there. Um, I'm trying to be more active on Twitter than I have been in the past, uh, but um, I, in the past I haven't been super active there. But if you want to follow me, then maybe that'll motivate me to be more active. So, yeah, I think that's all the places that people can read my stuff. Excellent. Okay, well, I encourage everyone to, to check out what you've written about CTP theory. And, um, yeah, it was great having you. Yeah, thank you so much. <laughs>